On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Discover the latest findings on neuroscience, cosmology, and the origins of life at templeton.org. Full disclosure, I wasn't really a parks and recreation person, though lots of people around me were. Still, I have loved the actor Nick Offerman in roles large and small. He stars in an astonishing episode of the current HBO series, The Last of Us. I've enjoyed how his many characters, whether macho or mild-mannered, often use big, juicy words with great panache and even, it has seemed to me, with great care. But what really compelled me to pursue the conversation that follows here is learning about Nick Offerman's passionate callings that are older and deeper than his public vocation as an actor. He works with wood, and he works with other people who work with their hands, making beautiful, useful things out of wood. And this, it turns out, is also a primary source of his tethering and values. And it's a source of a spiritual thoughtfulness that I really enjoy drawing out. Nick Offerman's five books include the delightful Good, Clean, Fun, Misadventures in Sawdust at Offerman Woodshop. And that's a business he founded in Los Angeles in 2001, which has been his livelihood at times. It's organized as a collective that creates handcrafted items from spoons to canoes to ukuleles. They work with fallen trees from around urban L.A., as well as greater California and Oregon. He also wrote winsomely about his love of the natural world and his reverence for the farmer, poet, Wendell Berry, who we, of course, also love here at On Being. When we spoke, Nick had just recorded the audiobook version of Wendell Berry's 2022 book, The Need to Be Whole. I found this conversation edifying. That's a word Nick and I both overuse at times. And I also found it, not surprisingly, a lot of fun. I hope you will, too. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Nick Offerman grew up on a three-acre homestead, as he says, out in a cornfield in Manuka, Illinois. Well, Mr. Megan Mullally, welcome to On Being. Thank you very kindly. <laughs> I should say that I'm reading your name beneath your Zoom box. But I just want, you know, I noticed that a lot of the interviews you did in the last year or so, people took it as an occasion to walk in, in nature with you. So I'm sorry that we didn't get to do that, but I'm glad we're here in, the, in each other's headphones. I, I am too, and let's maybe take a rain check. Okay. I would like that. So, so Nick, I, I don't think I'm going to ask you this question I often ask if there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood, because I heard you tell the, the wonderful Ezra Klein, basically, that you were an unmoved altar boy. So that's fine. But what I thought, the way I thought I might, might rephrase the question is, um, how would you describe kind of the roots of impulses and insights that animate you now that I would call you know, spiritual in the most expansive sense of the word, your spiritual and ethical and moral uh, foundations. How do you? How would you kind of start to locate that? What your well, childhood imparted? I I, uh, I definitely am picking up what you're putting down, and uh, I think that I mean, I feel like uh, my true spirituality or the the roots of of my values or mm-hmm. my sense of morality were occluded for a lot of my childhood by uh, conventional sort of Western spirituality. The people telling me what should be, uh, I should find sacrosanct, I was like, "This is, you're putting me to sleep. I would like to be out in the woods, please. <laughs> right. And it, years later, <laughs> the, the penny dropped and I said, oh, that's because that's what I find holy. And so only only in hindsight, I mean, I had a wonderful family on both sides, my mom and dad. Everybody came from an agricultural background. Many of them are still uh, pursuing their livelihoods in agriculture. And so being outdoors and and doing simple, honest labor with my family, whether it was working 
on my family's farm on my mom's side or learning to use tools or working in the kitchen or uh, housekeeping or weeding the garden or you name it. Uh, I mean, you know, they were composting before you could buy uh, composting bins in the the Sky Mall catalog. (laughs) And so that's, I mean, looking back on it, that's what stuck with me. Thank thank goodness. Yeah, you know, your most recent book is Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, and I've read that, but I also, in getting ready to talk to you, um, you know, I'm interested in the whole sweep of your kind of meanderings and writing and thinking and living, and I also just really loved um, your first two books, I think, Paddle Your Own Canoe and Good Clean Fun. I will say we also got... Uh, the book you wrote with your wife and my daughter absconded with it. <laughs> so I did not get a chance to look at that, but I, I have no doubt that your wife, Megan Mullally, will find an honorable mention as well marriage in this interview. Um, but yeah, so I just, you know, I really want to kind of spend some time with, and you just touched on it, this like working with your hands and using tools. You know, it seems like by trade, You've been a woodworker almost as much as you've been an actor. And that certainly you started working with your hands very early in your life before you were an actor. Uh, that's true. I, I, I just gravitated, I guess. Uh, we were all taught to, you know, do all the chores. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to be out in the field or out in the vehicles with uh, with Grandpa and my uncles and my dad would work part-time on the farm. And so being around there, you learn uh, to use the, a mechanic's tools yeah. and some small carpentry. And as over the years, you know, we planted hundreds of trees. My, my folks had a huge garden. We built a couple outbuildings. And so as I grew, my dad would let me and my siblings help more and more. And everybody kind of had their strengths. And, and mine was... Uh, eventually <laughs> to to be able to hammer a nail using only one nail <laughs> okay good um and and i mean it was interesting to me that even when you okay so you were growing up in the 70s and 80s in this small town in illinois you went to the university of illinois you, you studied theater um but even when you were first doing theater in chicago in the mid 90s you were sometimes also working as a master carpenter on the set, right? And then in, in L.A., yeah. you were sometimes making part of your living between TV and film gigs, building decks and cabins for houses in the hills. Yeah, really, uh, all the way through my 20s, I made probably, I don't know, 85% of my living as a carpenter of one sort or another. You know, my acting career was a very slowly rolling snowball, so it was still kind of fist-sized <laughs> By, uh, by the time I turned 30. Um, so it was getting sporadic work, but I mean, I'd get a nice guest star job on an episode of ER, yeah. and that, that one week's paycheck would be worth like three months of carpentry. Mm. And so you'd, you'd hit these oases every three or six months, and then you, you know, then you'd go back to work swinging a hammer and, until the the next Clooney vehicle came along. <laughs> and would you also talk about your teacher, uh, your spiritual teacher, Shozo Satu, who you met when he taught you kabuki theater. And you also credit him with leading you to this woodworking discipline. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I met a cool friend in college named Joe Faust, and he was one of the curators of my life. I've always relied on these hmm. much more acculturated friends. And then finally, my, my magnificent bride to tell me what what books are good and, and what music is good. And so Joe Faust said, hey, next year we should sign up for this Kabuki theater class. And I said, okay, Joe, thank you. <laughs> and, and we did, and it turned out that I just had a skill set. I could carry heavy things and use tools that made me valuable to our sensei, Shozo Sato, who he's a juggernaut of uh, American theater. <laughs> He would take uh, Shakespeare plays and, and Greek plays and put them on in a fully traditional kabuki style, hmm. traditional Japanese theater style, which just had such a profound uh, effectiveness in sort of the pastiche of humanity. Like mm-hmm. our, our biggest hit show was in the early 90s. 
it was the Iliad on stage called Kabuki Achilles, and it, it was an anti-war show, the message of which, you know, when, when Achilles kills his ultimate enemy, Hector, they grasp hands, and, and he says, basically, why are we doing this? You are as I. We are the same. And so, you know, this farm kid uh, suddenly is, I was touring Japan and touring yeah. hung, Hungary and Cyprus, and working for Shozo, carrying, like, just being his, his helper in the garden and around the house. And he would, he would pass along little Zen koans and little sayings. Like, the most effective one in my life was always maintain the attitude of a student. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, I was his student in college, and I thought, well, that seems... Uh, uh, not it was that very literal. effective of yeah. a thing to say. Yeah. yeah, That's no problem. I, I'm paying tuition, in fact. And <laughs> right. I mean, we still are very good friends. He married Megan and I with a tea ceremony. Oh. And so over the years, I continue to, to sort of parse the meaning of every gesture I've ever witnessed from him. And because they always continue to unfold. And as I grow and I've learned how to tie both my right and left shoes the the meaning becomes clearer to me and maintain the attitude of a student just means understand our human fallibility yeah. understand that we're never done learning and that turns you to to face our ignorance and to me that leads to joy like oh mm. the, I'll never be done reading books I'll never be done making better boats or furniture or or trying to be a good husband or family member, and on and on and on. And mm. once you once you grasp that, you can have a very happy life. Here's here's a lovely way that you um, wrote about this lesson: always maintain the attitude of student. And in your book, um, paddle your own canoe. Was this your first book? <laughs> it was. This it, is it, a it, lovely autobiographical like your story. Thank you. So you wrote. Um, my favorite rule from Sensei was always maintain the attitude of a student. And then you wrote, when a person thinks they have finished learning, that is when bitterness and disappointment can set in. As that person will wake up every day wondering when someone is going to throw a parade in their honor for being so smart. As human beings, we, by the definition of our very natures, can never be perfect. This means that as long as we are alive and kicking, we can be improving ourselves. No matter our age, if we always have a project to which we can apply ourselves, then we will wake up every day with an objective, something productive to get done. This allows us to go to bed at night in the peaceful knowledge that we have done some good, gained some achievement, however small. And then you said, having ears for this lesson has been one of the luckiest pieces of listening I've done because it has led to my woodworking discipline, one of the greatest joys of my life. And I just feel like you... You learn so much about life through woodworking. Whenever you perform as a humorist, you encourage the audience to find something to make with their hands. What's that about? Well, I mean, again, we, we get back down, and eventually I know, look, if we're going to become friends, uh, I've set a record. This is the longest I've ever talked to somebody without bringing up Wendell Berry. <laughs> Well, okay, rest assured, I will take I you to Wendell Berry if we don't get there, but we it's, can go in there whenever you I want. I mean, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So mm. the wonderful Kentucky Agrarian, who, whom you have featured on this program before, is is uh, another just one of my great teachers. I'm a huge fan and, and student of his writing. Yeah. And it all comes down to this sensibility of uh, learning the value of what I could do with my hands which in my case was generally make things out of wood, although I also love, I can sew clothing, I can, I love to cook, I love to give massages, like there's a lot of things that I love to do with my hands, but I, l let's just say the best is woodworking. What I realized was by finding that, finding this organic vocation, that's my gift. With the tools that I've been given, I can make you a, a really nice table and chair, or a canoe, or a musical instrument, and we can all from which we can all profit and this is to me that is like the seat of of holiness and and humanity i think we all have this set of gifts i think everybody has something that they can make with their body like you know the most obsessive like accountant who says no 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 i'm only obsessed with the abacus and keeping the accounts I can never make anything with my hands. I still say if everybody could try everything, uh, 
you'll find something that you excel at. And maybe it's, maybe it's not as tangible. Like we have to think outside the box. Maybe it's child rearing, mm. or maybe it's like, maybe your hugs are so incredible that you mm. should work at a senior citizen's home and, and just be the hug wizard, whatever it is. I think that everyone has something that they can do. And, and, it gets to the heart of what is right and wrong, I think, about our civilization, which is our industrial consumerism sells us the idea that we should ignore our bodies. We should ignore right. the parts of us that are Mother Nature. We should purchase satisfaction. We should purchase goods. You know, we should, we should consume. Yeah. We shouldn't create. And all those examples you gave, including especially the woodworking, it's where the brain and the body are having to coordinate. And there's this line that Wendell Berry that you quote, that the mind that is not baffled is not employed. And I mean, I I love the way you, you talk about how woodworking presents these puzzles that that just engage and stretch, stretch a person in a very joyful and kind of life giving way. I mean, that's it. I, I love a puzzle. My wife and I love doing jigsaw puzzles, but we also just love mind teasers. We love, you know, doing uh, the New York Times spelling bee. Like we, <laughs> right. it, it, it's a touchstone for us where we compare notes and mm. we shake our fists at the, <laughs> the, the tidbits that we missed yesterday. Mm. Uh, the word was tidbit and we were very mad to have missed it. It was literally and tidbit yesterday. That's right. Which I think, I think <laughs> okay. there's no spoiler in that. Uh, okay. But yet, yeah, a few days ago, I missed the word idiotic, which seemed pretty appropriate. But I mean, we, for me, I love to be engaged and I love to be curious because mm-hmm. I'm 52 years old and my uh, I've, I've been athletic and strong for uh, my whole life. And I'm very grateful for those gifts. But the entropy is upon me. Like my, you know, my joints are complaining. My I have a, a herniated disc. And so... As I as I realize, okay, I've got to slow down. I got to slow down a step, hmm. and I'm heading into whatever this next phase of my life. I'm so grateful. I mean, I'm I'm ravenous for the things that keep me curious and engaged. And so it's, instead of my wife and I sitting around and uh, becoming bored with each other, and then what sniping at each other and like resenting each other. We say, what puzzle can we <laughs> okay. can we turn our attention to? Yeah. In f- in fact, and th- this is a huge tip uh, that I think goes very well with the the vibe of on being. One of the greatest things we've learned to do as a couple, just in terms of fruitfully spending time together, is doing a big jigsaw puzzle. And sometimes, depending on the puzzle, and you, and you learn how you work together, sometimes <laughs> we'll do two puzzles so that there's no boundary issues. And then while you're doing the puzzles, listen to audiobooks. Okay, it's, wait, hang on. So each of you is doing your own puzzle, or you're doing two puzzles together? Either way. I mean, we, we've done it both ways. We've only recently discovered the stress-free edition of the two-puzzle system. Okay. So get on the dining table each set up your own puzzle and then listen to an audiobook and it all locks together in a very alchemical way that's quite gratifying okay and you know something else um you, you know you at age 38 Ron Swanson was born you had this starring role in Parks and Recreation and that's what many people came to know you for that role and in some ways that gave you i mean not just that role but there's this, I mean, where it's, oh, there was an article about you in Men's Health, and they say to you, you're synonymous with, with being a man's man, right? Ezra Klein said you have this camp masculinity. <laughs> and absolutely, this woodworking idea, I think, you know, on the surface, feeds into that. It looks so compatible. It looks like part of the shtick, but you've trained, it looks like women are running your, the Offerman uh, woodshop. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it, it's weird. I... When, pe- when people accuse me of masculinity or machismo, 
I say, I, I understand superficially what you're seeing and hearing. I, I get the package, but please rest assured that, I, that I'm a, a giggly <laughs> kid uh, inside this, this beefy lumberjack. And so immediately with Ron Swanson, the, it was interesting. Uh, a lot of different parts of the fan base um, sort of selectively cherry pick parts of Ron people would sort of lay this John Wayne sort of uh, yeah. pugilistic idea of yeah. masculinity on me. And I would say, Let's, why do we have to genderize every... Mm. Like, I think as we're evolving, especially in the field of gender, let's continue to erode these sensibilities. Because when people would say, oh, you're a woodworker, oh, so like in the garage, tools, dad kind of stuff. Yeah. And I would say, well, no, I mean... I know what people are saying uh, when they accuse me of being manly, but I say, <laughs> I, th I, thank you, but please, like, I hope you never see my, my older sister, Lori, can like wilt me with a glance. <laughs> like she, you know, there, yeah. there's, there's power and then there's power. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you said a minute ago, you kind of collect and look for curators, help people help curate life. But I think teachers and friends, this is really important to you. And it feels to me like, you know, your friendships, that you invest in these things. You, you invest in following what, what you learn from people who you consider to be your teachers. And you invest in friendships. And, um, oh, in Paddle Your Canoe, you wrote that, Paddle Your Canoe, you wrote, without teachers in our lives, we would be a bunch of sorry dullards, indeed, dimwits and dunces. So this is where I start to invite you to talk about your teacher and friend, Wendell Berry, who feels very special in your pantheon of curators of life. Oh, boy. Well, thank you. I, uh, it's, that's true. I, um, I, could, I could really go on a long time. I'll try and, and be nutshelly. Uh, in, in the mid-90s, I was doing a production of uh, Sam Shepard's Buried Child, his Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, incredible play at the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. And uh, there was a, a wonderful actor in the show named Leo Burmester, uh, who's no longer with us, but he, he was from Kentucky, and we became friends. And he's a big, loud, uh, w wonderful character. Mm -hmm. He uh, is, a, is a gentleman and a boor all at the same time. And uh, Leo Burmester saw something in me and gave me a book of Wendell Berry short stories and said, just, I think, you, I think you will like these. And I'm literally welling up. Uh, it was so, the, it so profoundly affected my life. Uh, and I never got, I never saw him again. I never, uh, oh, gosh. years went by. Uh, he, you know, he, I think he was based in New York, but it was several years before I understood what what this work meant to me, and um, but I I read these stories and I just was was uh, knocked flat by first and foremost uh, the reverence with which Wendell paints. Uh, <laughs> sorry, mm -hmm. with which he paints regular people, which which is my family. Uh, I have this incredible big family, and everybody except the jackass you're talking to is here. Here's, here are the jobs of my whole family in Manuka. Uh, <laughs> three librarians, two school teachers, farmers out the wazoo, uh, paramedic, uh, craft beer, <laughs> craft brewer. Um, I, I think that's everybody like the, a couple, a couple people work in, uh, in the administration for like a seed corn company. But, mm -hmm. but by, by and large, it's a family of, people who, who give their lives in service. They're humble. Uh, they're generous. I hold them in such high regard. And, and here I am reading this fiction and I'm, I'm aspiring to sort of get away from there. Mm -hmm. uh, something about, something about the conservative small town made me say, ah, there's a lot, there's a lot of what's great about humans here, but there's also, uh, as I, as I go, go through adolescence, I'm realizing there's also a lot of prejudice. And so as I lived in bigger and bigger cities, because that's where the theater is, 
uh, I suddenly, I don't know, I went through this, this shift when I read these Wendell Berry stories where I realized, oh, I have so much more value than I ever realized because of my family and because of where I come from. And yeah, these... I mean, I'm also, I'm a small town Oklahoma person too. I mean, I think that impulse is very, well, that's part of the human story, right? It is. I mean, yeah. it, it makes sense. And it, and that, it's very important that we sort of voice that because that's at the heart of what Wendell's putting across. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what he began to teach me, and, and he still hasn't finished, is that I was attracted to the same shiny, bright lights and big city, whether that's literal or figurative, that, that all of civilization is, yeah. which has allowed us to take a wrong, a very bad wrong turn around the Industrial Revolution. And with his fiction and his essays and his poetry, he just speaks so, so patiently and eloquently. And if he was here, I, I, I mean, I always feel his eyes on me. Hmm. I would also say, and, and he's grumpy, and, like, and he should be, like, <laughs> and he's, he's fallible. But I mean, the overweening, uh, th- the theme of, of his work just really punched me in the gut because of uh, the availability. My, like my parents had instilled in me the proper channels for Wendell's message to reach me. And so I, I wrote him a letter, basically <laughs> asking him if I could adapt some of his work. And he said, and he wrote me back and he said, I like you and I like your letter. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we continued to correspond over mm-hmm. the years. And it I don't know, 20 years later in maybe 2015 or so, friends finally uh, put me together with a great documentary filmmaker named Laura Dunn. Mm. And she was making a documentary about Wendell and his vision. And she was having some difficulty because Wendell and his wife, Tanya, had agreed to the documentary. They agreed to participate <laughs> in, a, in a movie about him. And he, and he said, well, I will cooperate as long as I don't have to appear in the movie. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, they're very private and guarded. So like, okay, here's something you said. So just to kind of to pull through what you were just talking about, about how it shifted the way you saw your childhood and the world, really, um, that somehow you went from thinking in terms of having a bucolic upbringing to finding roots of an agrarian sensibility that he helped you start to value. Does that, does that sound right? Or am I paraphrasing? No, that's, yeah. no, that's, very, that's what, very good. And what does that mean to you? Like that, that, what is that transition? Well, it, what it means is, I mean, it's something that he'll be the first to say, as soon as you flip a light switch, uh, we're all complicit. We're sold a lifestyle that tells us you don't have to be frugal. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay attention to your neighbors. All you have to do is, if you have one of these phones, you just hit a button and they'll bring you your food and then they'll take away your waste. And so for me, I mean, it's a constant wrestling match. I I just did the audio book for Wendell's. Yes, I know. His incredible new book uh, called The Need to Be Whole. And it's so, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because First of all, Wendell is a very scholarly and erudite writer, and just to deliver his paragraphs mm. cogently to a listener mm. is really hard. Yeah, I can see that. I can imagine not, that. Not only that, but you have to turn off the voice in your head where he's laying down this deep wisdom, and you're thinking, oh my God, you're just thinking about the combustible engine that I drove to get here today and the air conditioning that I'm sitting in and so forth and so on. Mm. And so it's it, what what I determined once I got, I got involved with producing uh, that documentary called Look and See, and it's wonderful, it's beautiful. I'm so grateful to be part of it. And a, a fun Easter egg <laughs> is that I do appear in the movie, but only my hands and tools making ah. a three le- a three legged stool. Oh, the berry what, stool. That's right. That's, that's so why beautiful. It's called the berry stool. Thank you. And. I mean, I sincerely think that may be the pinnacle of my career, mm, like mm. getting get, for an audience to see 
my hands making a stool mm. while Wendell talks about it. Mm. I, I mean, mm. I'll, I'm ready to retire after that. <laughs> so were you able to choose some passages of Wendell Berry's writing that have been really formative for you? And I understand the challenge of that. I really do, especially because you're so steeped in his the fullness of his work. Um, well, it's but it's it's like I can't think about it too hard. What I do is mm-hmm. think I, I I pretend we're sitting on my bedroom floor and we're twelve and I'm I'm <laughs> playing you my records. Yeah. Okay. And, good. And Play and me I'm your like, records. You haven't heard the monkeys? Yeah. Are you crazy? Check yeah. this out. Uh, and so the first thing I'll do because I'm not going to read you any f- of his fiction is give your listeners a pitch for his fiction. Okay. Start with some short stories. There's a book called Watch With Me. There's a book called Fidelity. But here's the thing. All of his fiction, of which there's, I'm, I'm guessing, eight novels and 40 short stories, something like that, it's all one massive pastiche. Mm-hmm. It's a mural painted across the entire sky of this fictional uh, riverside town called Port William in Kentucky, I hope one day to maybe adapt some of it, and if I do, I hope I do it in a way. Mm-hmm. He's, he, he openly says, uh, I, I, I approve of you. Uh, I, I think your heart is in the right place. Wait till I'm dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, but, but I mean, so for me as a storyteller, mm-hmm. it's his fiction. Like that, that, that's what drew me in. Mm-hmm. I'd start off with a few lines from... There's a poem, it's a little long, uh, called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer oh, Liberation yes. Front. Yeah. And it's it's just wonderful. I have a, a wonderful letterpress version of it hanging in the bathroom at the shop. <laughs> um, but here's just a few lines that delight me. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. And then, as soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. I love those instructions. And I just, I, if nothing else, as a... Mary Oliver's instructional, uh, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good because that's the human condition. Mm -hmm. But he's somewhere else. He says, you know, like we owe it to the universe to be joyful because we're capable of it. Nobody Mm. like Mm. because we can, we, we ought to do that. Mm. And then one other, one other tidbit, this is such a, a great quote, and this this ties him to Aldo Leopold, who is also very prevalent in my last book. Yes, yes. He's another heroic American agrarian yeah. who ended up at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and and he was really instrumental in shaping a lot of Wendell's thinking. It was Aldo Leopold who just looked around him and said, "Wait a second, we're not separate from nature. We're, whatever our ecosystem is, wherever we live, even in even at the top of a skyscraper in Manhattan, we're in nature. We're part of this ecosystem. And, and then this quote from Wendell comes into play. Whether we and our politicians know it or not, nature is party to all our deals and decisions, and she has more votes, a longer memory... <laughs> and a sterner sense of justice than we do. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that like my mom and dad instilled in me and I'm 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 not <laughs> wise and I'm not as responsible as I would like to be. I'm not as prudent as I would like to be, but they put it in me so that I I have it's that feeling of when you're out at a dinner and someone some rich acquaintance is there and you're broke and you're like are they picking up dinner? Like, am I going to have to pony up the $17 in my pocket? Yeah. 
Is this going to be embarrassing? That's what we're doing. That's what our society is doing is we're running up the bill. Mm. And at some point, the meal is going to end. They're going to run out of bread in the kitchen. And someone's going to give us the tab. And we're going to say, oh, shit, we we forgot we have to pay. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org. Okay, Wendell Berry is in the middle of this conversation. He will remain here. I do want to say, this is turning a corner a little bit. I mean, you're very humble, and I appreciate that, and it's tr- it's real. And I just want to say one of the things I appreciate the most about you, and it comes through in a lot of the characters you play as well, and it makes me wonder if the characters were already written that way or because you're playing the role they're written that way. But you really use words. You value words, and you value words that are not often thrown into casual American sentences, which are usually way too casual for my taste and just in general. And when I was thinking about the adjectives I would use for the way you use words, I was thinking about you use words that are, I, I found I was using all these food words, right? Like meaty or delicious or a mouthful. So I don't know what that's about. That's interesting. Um, but I just like, I love the way you use the word edifying, which is one of my favorite words, or engendering mirth, or, uh, you know, in the Good Clean Fun book, the setting up the shop chapter, the, the kind of subtitle is, this is one of the most titillating steps in a woodworking practice, <laughs> not to mention one of the easiest to accomplish. Because, And I, I, I just want to know where that comes from in you is has have you always been like that and i just you know just what i want to say is in my mind not always but ideally there there can be a real connection between taking great care with the words we use and taking great care with how we're living boy uh, you know the reason you have a, a massively popular npr show and podcast is because you're very astute and and thoughtful and you hit a uh, a very lovely nail on the head in specifically in that Wendell writes very beautifully about this subject about that if we don't treat our language with affection mm-hmm. how how can we treat our communication or those with whom we we engage our whether we share you, life right like with, yeah we yeah. share our lives yeah. who we communicate mm-hmm. but also and also the actions you know what we do with mm-hmm. how we describe the world how we describe what we're going to do to the world you know it's it's a sort of madmen uh sort of uh, uh <laughs> you you've complimented me and now i now i'm tongue-tied um <laughs> okay. The, it's it, it's a uh, oh hell, in the in the world of of madmen and advertising, yeah. it's you know it's de rigueur that you you come up with uh, language that is elusive and that is cloaking, hmm. and and in the world of nature and her economy, hmm. the more honest we can be, I think, the more beautiful our language is, hmm. and to, I mean, but to answer your question, it's a weird. Uh, Thinking back on it, which I haven't really been asked this, um, I'm thinking of like the scenic carpenters that were my friends in Chicago. I remember making them laugh. I've always loved reading. My aunt uh, was the first librarian, my Aunt Mickey, uh, and she gave me The Lord of the Rings and she gave me The Chronicles of Narnia and set me off on a world of, of, of reading and like reading comprehension and wanting to communicate stories to others. And so I remember with my, my friends, even in Chicago, I'd read a book and something would just strike me. I would like, I, I love the way 
Robert Anton Wilson used <laughs> this <laughs> this phrase, and then I would try it out the next day right. and sort of add it to my, put it uh, in my quiver. And the thing is, and then I, I, I mean, I never dreamed that I would become a writer of books. Uh, mm. But when I did, when I had the opportunity, I said, holy cow, I really want to. I, I love compiling language and thought and like participating in this in this vast conversation uh and i happen to have some really great teachers that i can try and pass along to you all but it's a it's a tricky thing because i don't ever want to come across as showy or like or or somehow brandishing a vocabulary but instead I make mistakes, uh, and I have to credit my wife, who was an English major at Northwestern. <laughs> she con- like even today, uh, she corrects me all the time. So there, there, there's a real student-teacher relationship in a lot of ways that I'm grateful for. And so it's just it's one of the ways in which I'm open and curious. I yeah. continue to try to learn new words because I think our language is beautiful. And it's it, like hand skills. It's one of the things that are being allowed to atrophy yeah. in our civilization. And I want to go the other direction. I want it to continue to blossom. And I, I want people to learn better ways to use chisels instead of ask me what what is a chisel. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And and the other thing is using unexpected words, uncommon words. It opens a space of possibility, right? It shakes you out of it. It makes you think. It's always good for us to be made to think, yeah. right? It's that it's that little puzzle thing that you mentioned. It's good for us, but, 100%. you know. And you also use words, and you don't just use these words. I can't remember where I got this. It may have been from your blog. You know, decency, humility, kindness, generosity, honor, fidelity is another one you use a lot, and. Those are muscular words, right? Those words connote something important, and they're easy to use in a hollow way, and they do get used in hollow ways, but when they're used with integrity, with intentionality, they shift things in us, right? And I mean, I want to point out that when you note those kinds of things, the words, but the things behind them as important to you, you say, again, I don't know where I got this, and I aspire to embody them in life. Once in a while, I succeed in doing so. Usually, I do not. Um, So they're not boasting. They're aspirational, but they're meaningful. Well, they are. I mean, that, that, and that's, uh, that's why I'm so grateful that, uh, that I have the ears and the eyes to take that in mm. uh, because I will always fail uh, ultimately at being generous. Like I have this wonderful big family and I wish I wrote them all a letter once a week, mm. for example. Mm. But I, I, rare, like, I fail hugely at that desire. Um, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna grab one example, and that is the word fidelity. Yeah. It all is part of this uh, this set of values that that attached when Wendell first struck me uh, like a thunderclap. It was because his writing said to me, "I'm writing some gorgeous stuff about your family." <laughs> and mm. and the and the first story that I asked him if I could adapt, and I. Uh, still would love to is called fidelity, and hmm. it was then hmm. specifically with that word and that value that I said that was my my way in to him and what he 's talking about specifically with fidelity in a modern sense it brings to mind a marriage, and are you true in your monogamous relationship is what is how I connote that yeah. most strongly, but what he 's talking about is who and what are you loyal to? Yeah. Who do you care about? Who Who is in your neighborhood? And that includes people and animals and rocks and grass and air. And that story made me pay attention to that word fidelity. Hmm. And it made me say, okay, what... I'm I'm a dancing jester. I travel the world and like sing and dance for people in different ways, in different arenas. You know, it used to bum me out. My family are such prolific gardeners. And that's one of the, when people say, well, what are we supposed to do? What's your solution? I say, well, grow some food. Like, 
or find out who's growing your food and, and care about that. I can no longer, you know, be blithely uh, blind to where did this burger come from? <laughs> yeah. You know, something that just strikes me about this evolution, I would say, that you've made. I mean, you started out being somebody who loves the outdoors, loves the natural world, loves working with your hands. Your family kind of had a reverence for that. But the evolution has been in just deepening that understanding of all of this and your existence and our existence. The fact that we keep, for me, it's like understanding that we are not in the natural world, but of it, and that we're not whole without its wholeness and health. And I feel like this move you've made is a trajectory that a lot of us are on, right? Even just what you talked about. So you, so you've gotten to this point where it affects the way you look at a hamburger. But that was right. That's decades of getting more and more granular about this. And then at the same time, we are living in this world that, on the one hand, is waking up to this in parts, in places, in ways, and then. It's structured to take our attention away from it, right? Like we, I mean, it's a world of working with our thumbs, right? <laughs> Not yeah. with our, with our hands. And um, I, I don't know. How do you? So I, I just, I kind of just place that uh, great paradox before you. I mean, maybe this is this is what we've been talking about the whole time. Well, I mean, to, it occurs to me to finish a thread from my last answer that mm-hmm. will that will kind of lead into this yeah. answer, which which is, um, you know, I'm facing this dilemma as as you speak of, and I, and I'm my family are these incredible gardeners, and I live an itinerant life. I, I my house is in Los Angeles, but I am out of town a lot. Uh, working on location or on tour as an entertainer or an author. And so, you know, I'm I'm like, boy, I'm so full of it. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. listen, I'd love to grow some, some uh, Brussels sprouts, but I got to go jump on another airplane. Yeah. And you're right. And I think a lot of us have our version of that. Sure. uh, To scale that up or down. Yeah. But for me, what saved me or what is my salve uh, is that I said, oh, hang on, I've got this wood shop that is a year-round garden uh, with four to six people, and I pay incredibly strong attention to the health of this garden and to the, the, the produce of this garden, which are, are the things that we make in the wood shop, but it's also the people that I'm responsible for and that I take care of. Yeah. And that, I said, oh, like, God, what a relief. Like, I, I have something that I can give to. Uh, I don't make a dollar from the wood shop. It, it's an ongoing experiment, and it always just about breaks even. <laughs> and so we just try to keep pushing it and, and giving everybody a little raise or, you know, making their their quality of, of life. Uh, we keep goosing it uh, more and more, we, we they recently graduated from Medelo Especial to Negra Medelo, which was a, very exciting. Uh, that's a beer. It's a beer joke. Oh, um, okay, <laughs> all right. I didn't get it. Okay, yeah. You've you, you must have not, never framed a house. Um, <laughs> I have never framed a house, indeed. I feel like you've already actually done this to some extent, but you know, a question I want to ask you is, I'm so aware, and I know you're so aware, we're going to talk about this too, of we need replenishment and we need imagination to create the possibility and the realities and to just face these callings before us. And I feel like you did kind of offer that with working with your hands, doing something with your hands and, and your body. And, and you offered some, but I, something else that intrigued me is you talked someplace about gift making. Do you remember oh, that? Sure. Um, yeah. How is yeah, that was, a, as a practice? How would you kind of describe that? Well, I mean, that's, a, I, I haven't talked about it for a long time. In my first uh, touring show, I did a bit, it was called American Ham. And I, uh, I did a bit about making a card, 
because people, again, it, it ties into consumerism. People think, oh, shoot, it's somebody's, you know, birthday, anniversary, what have you. I need to go buy them a card. And I say, make, make them a damn card. Like, get, take a piece of paper out of the printer, fold it in half, get, take a pencil or a crayon or, or better, and draw a heart. Mm-hmm. And and open it up and say I love you, love Nick. Mm-hmm. Like that's the bare minimum. That is worth so much more than any b- BS Hallmark <laughs> card from the drugstore, because you it says not only I love you, but it says I took the time. And of course, you should do better than a piece of paper out of the printer. But the that it would still be better than a Hallmark card. Well, that's just it. Yeah. We've been reduced to the point where if we want to. Uh, communicate a gesture of love. I mean, Wendell Berry says it all turns on affection. If we want to express affection to others, which we should with regularity, we've been taught that that means we need to buy something. And instead, I mean, I do, I have a thing with my wife where like, I will leave, if I see her car, sometimes when we go on walks uh, or if, you know, if we're like meeting somewhere, if I ever run into her car without her, I'll scrabble around and find a piece of litter Mm -hmm. and make a heart out of it and stick it in her car door. Mm -hmm. Like that, because that's a thing. And it takes me a minute. And sometimes, you know, there's like a good word on a Doritos bag that's like share and I'll tear a heart (laughs) around it. And I'm, and in moments I've, I've, I've just created a little bit of goodwill and love. And, and for those, you know, before you're, you get a bunch of letters. Uh, I then dispose of the rest of the Doritos wrapper in a proper receptacle because I, I love Mother Nature as mm. well as my wife. Mm. Mm. But yeah, make make a gift. It's that that's something you can do that doesn't cost any money, that doesn't use any natural resources. Yeah. Express affection to each other. Are you familiar with this phrase of, from Rilke about living the questions that I? I talk about on it from time to time. Are you familiar I, with that? Oh, oh, yes, and only because I've heard you talk about yeah. it a few times. I think it's very wise for the time we're living in now because it's the sense, you know, he says you should love the questions themselves as though, we were, as though they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language and that if you can't live a question, if to rush to an answer would be to, this is me paraphrasing, but if to rush to an answer would be to deny the enormity and the dignity of the question, then you have to live the question. You have to hold the question, live the question. And I think in a time like ours where we don't have shared answers um, and yet we have to figure out what it takes to move towards them, you know, we have to live the questions. And I just wonder if you think about that phrase, what might be a question that you are living now and that you might want to be living alongside others? Oh, boy. (laughs) 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 Sorry, Uh, no, this is like we've been talking for... That's, I mean, no, that's just, that's just a massive, uh, my, I mean, mine, I, you know, the question that I'm living or attempting to live is how can I come as close as possible to getting it right? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And I've had the great good fortune to learn that chasing wealth is not uh, the answer. I've learned that tangibly. I've crunched the numbers (laughs) in a few different ways. And so that that was so freeing to then say, ah, okay, it's like uh, sitting in a fishing boat that's cheap with my family is so much better than sitting on an expensive yacht. And so it's it's checking those boxes and continuing to learn as I as I travel this life. Um, and and you know it, it keeps me focused on when. I have sort of a mantra, and it is running through my relationships in my head in descending order. My wife, my mom and dad, my siblings, my neighbors, my friends, my woodshop employees. Um, And it's, it's running through those and checking in with them mentally and in my heart. Am I okay with him? Am I okay with her? I owe mom and dad a call because we had a disagreement or, or I was maybe a little too admonishing about that subject that they were being old-fashioned about. And so that's, that's my answer, is, is, uh, is checking in with the, the part of me that, that would be aspiring to wisdom, hmm. saying, saying, how am I doing? 
am I am I getting any closer to getting it right? Hmm. That's just lovely. Thank you. My pleasure. You know, I want to ask you one more question. Um, in where the deer and the antelope play. So okay, so Aldo Leopold, we he, he came up a little bit. I always love it when there are echoes between conversations and. I was thinking of when I interviewed Drew Lanham, who's a uh, an ornithologist huh. in uh, South Carolina, who also had Aldo Leopold as one of his teachers and and companions. And I love this quote of him that he gave. He said, "To be oh this this is an admonition that he has lived by, Drew. To be one of those who cannot live without wild things, keep all the parts, listen to the mountain." and preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. So one thing I noticed is in this book, your new book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, you have a quote from Aldo Leopold, a very stunning quote, at the very, very end. I mean, after the acknowledgments, right? Um, yeah. Ethical behavior is doing the right thing when no one else is watching even when doing the wrong thing is legal. <laughs> so I just wondered if you would say something about that, but also why did you put it so, why there? <laughs> because, I mean, I'm so glad you, you pulled that out. I just love the idea of, you, you finish, you know, I love reading to the end of the last word of, of any book that I love. And so I, I love the sense of, all right, I, now, before you close the back cover, here, I, please leave with this thought, because <laughs> cause that's, that's just it. Like, it, all of these, these ideas, modern society allows us to ignore them. They, they allow us to turn off the mirror, turn away from the, the mirror of self-reflection and say, well, I, um, I'm too busy, I have all these distractions, I totally forgot about my ecosystem. Yeah. And especially the, I mean even in the you know a 100 years ago when he when he wrote that quote or so uh even then to say even when doing the wrong thing is legal I mean Yeah that was a reality of of human societies. Yeah. Yes, that yeah. sense of equivocation yeah. has mm-hmm. has been with us as long as people have voted I suppose. Yeah. Well, Nick this has really been epic. And I so appreciate your work. I appreciate your presence in the world. And this has just been incredible. Thank you. Well, thank you right back. Nick Offerman is the author of five books, including Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, Paddle Your Own Canoe, and Good Clean Fun, Misadventures in Sawdust at Offerman Woodshop. He's also written a book together with his wife, the actor Megan Mullally, called The Greatest Love Story Ever Told. And they have a podcast called In Bed with Nick and Megan. As an actor, he's played many roles and is probably best known as the character of Ron Swanson in NBC's Parks and Recreation. He is currently appearing in the HBO series The Last of Us, and he's narrated the audiobook for Wendell Berry's The Need to Be Whole. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Loren Drummerhausen, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Padre Gautuma, Gautam Shrikishan, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Amy Chatelaine, Romy Neme, Cameron Musar, Kayla Edwards, Juliana Lewis, and Tiffany Champion. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. We are located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. Our closing music was composed by Gautam Shrikishan. And the last voice you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. Our funding partners include the Hearthland Foundation, helping to build a more just, equitable, and connected America, one creative act at a time. 
The Fetzer Institute, supporting a movement of organizations applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality, supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.